Thank you for tuning in to Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories with Amy Syed. This episode is brought to you by 15minutesaday.ca. Today, we are going to talk to someone who's got a harrowing story about survivorship and thriving thereafterwards. We do want to start by sharing a content warning. Information shared in our podcast can be graphic in nature. We do recommend you review the details of our podcast before tuning in. We appreciate you tuning in, and we hope that the story shared with you today is inspirational and helps you get through tough times that you may be facing. Welcome again to Calm After the Storm. Welcome to Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories. This is our inaugural episode. It's super, super exciting for me because I finally get to talk about my story. And I have my sister here who my kids like to call their sister because they think that she's also my daughter because we were so close growing up. So today's episode, we're going to talk about grief, about domestic violence, and about terminal cancer. And the story that I'm sharing with you today is a very intimate story that um, I've never really discussed in this context before publicly. You know, it took me a long time to record this episode. I was recording it solo for a few weeks. And then I saw my sister and we decided that she would actually interview me because she's very much aware of my story and she's a big part of my story. And so I'm really honored to have her here with us today. This is Mavish Sayed. And Mavish, can you please uh, just introduce yourself, talk a little bit about what you do and uh, your relationship with me, and then we'll kick it off. Sure. So I'm also very excited to be a part of this. Uh, When Amy told me that she was going to be sharing her story, I thought it would be so great for me to be a part of it too. So I'm really happy to be a part of it. Thanks, Amy. To give a little bit of an introduction about me, uh, let's start with what I do because actually it's kind of it's kind of intertwined with with it I is. Think, your story and also the, about what you will talk about about our childhood and about our lives. Uh, but I work at the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation, where I am a fundraiser. I've worked with them now for six years, and I'm very fortunate because I get to work with a lot of uh, patients and families that have uh, been through cancer journeys themselves. I help to facilitate their support to certain areas of cancer research. And, you know, in a lot of ways, what I do is I'm, I help people uh, who are looking to make an impact. They might, a lot of people are going through grief. So someone may have passed in their life from cancer and they want to make an impact. And they're also dealing with their own grief when I'm helping them. I feel very fortunate to do what I do. Yeah, I guess that's sort of an introduction about what I do. Aside from that, uh, I'm Amy's youngest sister. Like Amy said, we've always been very close. Uh, We grew up and we were basically attached at the hip for, I think, definitely probably Amy's first, what, 25 25 years? At least probably closer to 27 or 28 years. But yeah. yeah. So, so we're very close. So, so I've heard, I mean, obviously I've heard a lot. I know, I know very intimately about Amy's story, but you know, I'll probably hear some things from a different perspective as we talk about it today. So yeah, I'm looking forward to sort of getting into things and, um, and just to give a little bit of a, 
of a preface here. Uh, if if things get emotional, you might, you know, I'm sorry if I start bawling <laughs> at any point. <laughs> That's what we're here for, Mavish. That's what we're here for. We'll, we'll both be bawling for the listeners okay. to hear. Okay, that's yeah. fine. <laughs> So let's just kick it off. We are going to start by by uh, prefacing also this episode with a content warning for people who are listening, um, who've been through any type of extreme grief, uh, domestic violence, or aspects of their cancer journey. This can also bring up emotions concerning that. But um, we hope that Overall, you're able to listen through to the end because our podcast series is very much about surviving things that happen to us and the thriving afterwards and how we can help people in the global community come out of challenges that they're facing so they can face at least another day, if not the rest of their lives. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to kick it off by introducing the podcast as it usually is presented, which is we have everybody who joins our podcast to tell their story, to talk a little bit about their childhood. The reason why we talk about our childhood is because our childhood also lays the groundwork and the foundation to who we become as adults. And so my childhood before Mabish, which is between when I was born to seven years old, I can remember was a pretty happy childhood. My parents, both immigrants to Canada, very hardworking, very highly educated. My father was studying to do his PhD in physics in Canada when he decided to join Toronto Police Services. My mother, a doctor from Pakistan and came here to uh, get residency and become a doctor in Canada. So my childhood was very much spent watching my parents work, my mother study so that she can get through her exams and get to becoming a full practicing doctor. And my father just working a lot and really loving and enjoying what he did. When Mabish was born and I was seven years old, I remember her coming home and I remember us continually changing. So we did... We, we always lived in a house that we owned. We were always very fortunate. We always had food on our table. And we always had all of our requirements in life taken care of. And so it was a really positive childhood. Um, we had challenges, of course, because, you know, our parents were immigrants to the country. So like other South Southeast Asian immigrants, we had considered I guess, facing racism from my parents' generation perspective when they were out in the public. I didn't experience very much racism myself. I was very lucky to be going to very multicultural schools throughout my upbringing, and I didn't ever have to face anything like that. And I don't know if you ever did, Mavish, either. I mean, I got a lot of, you know, with my name, I got a lot of interesting reactions. And to a certain degree, I still do. For example, I think a, a lot of people don't know if I'm male or female. <laughs> that's interesting. I mean, that's not, I mean, that's not racism, obviously. I yeah. think that's just a lack of familiarity with the name. And I think, uh, you know, so as I do tell people that uh, actually I'm a female. <laughs> yeah. But um, so I think it's mostly having to do with things like that. I One time I got from somebody, um, they had said, oh, you didn't change your name when you came to this country. 
Yeah. So uh, I get I get things like that where, but you know, I try not to see it as something that's necessarily racism, but more just people more ignorance than just not knowing um, and not being familiar with seeing a name like that before. And hopefully, after that one instance, it changes, right? So moving forward, if they ever come upon another Mavish, they'll say, oh, okay, it could be a, oh, it is a female. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I got the opposite because my parents called me Amy since I was born. And so my, my, my real name, Amberin, has really been ignored and people find out that's what my real name is. They often, you know, chastise me for changing my name, but I didn't. It's just the way things go. Having said that, going into my high school years, I remember feeling very, very much aware of who I was and who I wanted to be. I had spent a lot of time thinking sometimes that I was crazy because I was super sensitive and super aware of people and their emotions and their stories. I think it was the empath within me and I felt a lot for other people. I noticed that when I'd be in school and I'd find people to be friends with who had very sad stories and I couldn't figure out why, because, you know, I had both my parents and I had a pretty normal life. So I couldn't figure out why I was just attracted to people who had these stories or these inner struggles and uh, wanting to help people all the time. But I think now Uh, becoming an adult, I realized that I was kind of a self-destructive empath that way. In high school, um, you know, I worked super hard in academics. My parents had raised me to believe that I was going to be a doctor and I believed it myself too. And so I really focused on that. And throughout high school, it was really, you know, normal things going on. And then I applied for university in grade 13 because back then we had five years of university. And around the time that I applied, my dad had surgery that he had to undergo. And it was based really on complications from ulcerative colitis that he was dealing with. And so when he went in for surgery, my mom and I joined him at the hospital here in Toronto, and we ended up spending the whole day there. The surgery that was deemed to be a few hours ended up becoming a full eight or nine hour surgery. We knew something was wrong. I didn't know how to explain it at the time, but I think it was just my intuition. And so I felt this feeling of panic while he was in the in the OR. And uh, there came a point where my mom and I were both panicking and asking nurses and doctors and orderlies even that were going in and out of the OR what was going on till finally an orderly I found on an escalator somewhere in the hospital who I recognized. I asked him what happened and like what's going on and he said, don't worry, your dad's okay. He's still in the OR. What ended up coming of that was he was in the hospital for a few days to recuperate from the surgery and he was doing really, really well. And the day that he was released to go home, as soon as he got home, his surgeon called him and told him that he had colorectal cancer. That day, I think, really shaped much of what I remember concerning grief. I think the shock of finding out that day was really, really hard. 
I feel like we were all reeling. I know you were super little back then, and I don't know if you remember what happened, but it was one of those moments I always think was a pivotal moment in feeling that everyday normal feeling where you were kind of like, I know what's going to happen. And, you know, I have solace and feeling safe to going to this very unsafe place all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely, I remember that day very clearly, and I think you're, I think you nailed it with the, um, it, it just, there was so much uncertainty as when you hear the word cancer, I think, especially at that time when treatments weren't that great, it really did make you feel like that person was going to pass away soon. Um, I think even as a child, uh, even being younger. I didn't, I didn't know a lot about cancer, but what I did know was that it was very serious. Um, and I think the way we all, I think we all felt it seeing our mom and dad react, how they were reacting. Uh, we could tell a lot. And especially since I think mom coming from her medical background, seeing how she was so upset by it, it sort of also made us feel like, wow, this is, you know, this is big for us and it's very uncertain. So, so our security blanket was kind of taken out from under us. Our mom's a, a family physician. And so he, she had been practicing for quite a few years. And again, seeing their reaction was super devastating. What happened after that was that my father went through treatment, went through one round of chemo. Um, I believe he did radiation as well, recuperated. He actually got better and went back to work. The following year, you know, drove himself to the hospital for a checkup and was told that the cancer had recurred. And shortly thereafter, he was bedridden. That last period of his life was very hard for us. He didn't want to be in the hospital. He wanted to be home and we wanted to respect that. But what that meant was he was in and out of the hospital because home care cannot be 100% done at home, especially with situations that he was facing. So he would be in the hospital for a few weeks and then he would be released to come back home because he didn't want to be there. What ended up eventually happening was on June 8th, 1999, he did pass. He passed away at home. Um, we were all in the room. So he was surrounded by his family, with his father, uh, with his parents-in-law as well. So he passed away very peacefully, but that moment is etched in our minds. And when it was happening from my perspective, I felt like it was surreal and I felt like, you know, I had to be strong. And so in being strong, I think that I really didn't allow myself to feel what one should feel when their father passes away. A lot of the time spent thereafter was, you know, working and going to school and throwing myself into, you know, friendships, relationships, and really trying to find myself in the busyness and in the noise. And so things became very, very, very noisy after that. Literally, like any chance that I had escape that reality that we were living, I would take it. Not really turning to things like, you know, drugs and alcohol, but really turning to becoming kind of a workaholic, you could say. So it was like, you know, volunteering and going to school full-time and working almost full-time sometimes. It really, really took a hold of my life. And I thought at the time, you know, being immature, that it was the right thing to do and it was the right way to cope. But in hindsight, I think many people and many listeners who are listening today can identify with the fact that when you do 
grieve somebody who you were so close to, that's often what we do to make sure that we're still intact and we're still human. So Amy, you almost ignored the existence of that grief or sort of channeled it into just making yourself super busy so that you wouldn't be thinking about or feeling that grief the way it's normal to feel, right? Yeah. And I mean, it's it's a product of my personality. It's also a product of the way we were raised. A lot of my responsibilities as uh, being the eldest of three daughters was to make sure that I was responsible and in charge and in charge of my emotions and in charge of what people thought or expected of me, right? So there was a lot of, oh, Amy, you're so strong, right? Oh, Amy, I'm not like you, you're just strong. And that strong statement that I was, you know, holding as my badge of honor was really detrimental, I think, overall to what ensued afterwards. Going to into my late 20s, I met a guy at work and we dated for not very long and um, he asked me to marry him and I decided, you know, to do it. I thought at that time that I really wanted kids. He really wanted kids. We're both at the right place at the right time. Let's just, you know, get married and have kids, (laughs) right? And so getting into that relationship there were some red flags, right, that you would consider to be disturbing or troubling. And I think I just so wanted this life that was outside of that grief. And I so wanted to hold on to something new like children that would give me a higher purpose that I just thought this is the best way to do it. Being a type A personality, whenever he was disappointed with something that I was doing or disappointed by something that I presented to him, I would just go back and do a better job. Not ever stopping and thinking that like, you know, people don't really have a right to tell you that you should cook different or that you should act different or that you should look different or you should change the shape of your face or your arms or your legs. Like it was very specific types of verbal attacks that were going on. And I would just accept it and think that I was worthy of it perhaps and uh, just try harder. So in trying harder, we got pregnant quite quickly you know, it was a struggle to really deal with the pregnancy because I was so sick during the pregnancy. And I found out after my first ultrasound that I wasn't having one baby, but rather I was having two. (laughs) Mm, I remember that. (laughs) (laughs) And so when I found that out, I I, I remember, and I'm sure you are one of the people who said this to me, people were saying, well, you know, of all people, you'll be fine with twins. You know, you can handle the stress. And of all people, you know, if anybody was going to be chosen to be mom of twins, it it would be you. And again, it's like this badge of honor, but I was really, really struggling. And what nobody knew at the time was that I was seeing my family doctor who one day took me aside and asked me if my partner was abusing me. And I told her, you know, yeah, you know, he gets mad sometimes. And these are the things that he says to me. And she said, well, that's abuse. And it gets worse when you're pregnant. So you should really have a safety plan. And, you know, when you're being told that for the first time, although a part of you is aware of it, 
you don't want to accept it, especially because you're pregnant and you're, you're having these two babies with him. And, you know, there was also this belief system within me that if I admitted that this was failing to anybody, that I would be judged for it, or I I would have somebody come back and say, well, I told you so, and didn't want to go down that path at that time, you know, hugely pregnant with two babies. So she actually wrote me off of work and put that as my reason to be off of work and gave me mandatory uh, counseling that I had to do over the phone when he wasn't at home. So I would do that. And in doing that, I started to realize this is not a good relationship for me to be in. This is going to be very, very hard. And this is not something that I want for myself or for these children I'm bringing into this world. The other thing is that our father was very much against domestic violence. And he was very much and very verbose with the South Asian community in Toronto at the time where these things were not really talked about in the 80s and the early 90s talking about, you know, options if you are being abused as a woman in a home during any type of any form of intimate partner violence. And so that would always be in the back of my mind as well. So I really felt like a huge disappointment to my family and to myself. Fast forward, I delivered the twins. They were healthy and they're perfect and gorgeous. And um, the violence basically ramped up. So it went from being verbal and from being emotional to becoming physical. And as this was happening, I I knew something was really wrong with me. I wasn't feeling well. I had lost a lot of weight after my pregnancy. And I, I literally lost my pregnancy weight in like 30 days. I remember fitting into clothes, like pre-pregnancy clothes, a month after I had delivered the twins and feeling really, really, really devastated about that, not understanding why all this weight was coming off and it continued to come off. So I hit about 91 pounds a few months later and I was, uh, you know, regularly going to the doctor, adamantly telling the doctor that there's something wrong with me, repeatedly asking and advocating for myself with, uh, with professionals. And eventually they found that I had um, a growth in my stomach. And when they biopsied it, it turned out to be cancerous. During, I know you fast forwarded over the pregnancy part, but how I remember it, I know the pregnancy was really tough on you too, physically, because you, you, I mean, you were, you were smaller in frame and you had these two babies inside of you. So I remember how big you were and, um, and physically it was tough. Like you were, you were always sick. And, and so you were going through a lot aside from the other stuff with the abuse. I know you were going through a lot just with the pregnancy too. Yeah. My body had been taken over, right? Which it does when you're in a situation like that. It's a high risk pregnancy. I was sick from the day I found out I was pregnant till the day uh, that they were born. So there was never a moment where I had a day where I had a break, right? It was just constant. After they were born, it was a lot of work. Twins are just Uh, They're a blessing, but, you know, you feed one, you feed the other, and it's continuous all the time. But I think at that point, they were really a blessing because they really kept me going on days where, you know, you don't feel that great and you don't feel like dealing, right, with the situation that that was going on around me. After I was diagnosed with cancer and they were about five months old, I ended up going through treatment. Um, I delayed the treatment to return to work because 
half of my maternity leave had been given to my spouse. Um, so I had returned to work. And when I found out I was going to have to go through treatment and committed to it, um, I was laid off with a large layoff at work, which was another blow to my ego and super devastating for me. At this point, I mean, going through treatment, it was really like going through the motions, right? It was a very, very detached experience. The only thing that would give me life were the twins, but everything else felt very, very distant and dark. And when I look back at that time, I can't remember a lot of it. All I do remember though is the darkness. There was just darkness all the time. And so when I started to come out of this, I ended up working as soon as my my treatment ended. And um, I went for a colonoscopy, I remember, because I was due to have a colonoscopy. And the results of the colonoscopy came back with, I guess they had biopsied part of the wall of the colon and diagnosed me with an advanced form of cancer in my colon. Now, at this point, I think I went into shock because... Um, I couldn't believe what was happening. Um, I had plans for so many different things in life and that kind of came to a halt. It was, it was a hard time. It was a really, really hard time looking through, you know, options, trying to figure out what was going to help me. I went through, um, some chemotherapy. They didn't have very many options at the time for the type of cancer that I had. The first type of chemotherapy I was really ill with. The second type of chemotherapy that they had to offer, I was so ill that they had to stop the chemotherapy because my blood counts were so low. So it really left me in a place where I had just the option to throw in the towel or to find another way. And so something that I've always had in the back of my mind, but didn't want to believe was that this was all within me, right? Like, the struggle is within me and the healing is within me. So I started to research and I know that you and I used to research a lot together and we started looking at different options and different ways to use alternative care to treat what I was going through. So I remember I did start to see alternative practitioners. We had plans to seek alternative measures. And ultimately, I did end up leaving the country for cancer treatment. Yeah. And I, I actually, I remember reading about apricot seeds and being like, oh, I think you should have this. And so we were coming up with all sorts of alternative therapies for you to do. So you ended up leaving the country because they didn't have a treatment for your type of cancer, correct? Yeah. Because the so, chemotherapies yeah. that I was given they just weren't suitable for my body. My hair was falling out and I was having very adverse side effects to them. So ultimately they said that, you know, at this point I had one oncologist tell me that at this point you should really consider spending time with your children and deciding what you want to do, right? Um, with the rest of your life because it's limited. And I remember thinking there's no way, there's no way I can leave these two girls to anybody else. No one's going to be their mother, right? And it really, really pushed me to start to look at myself in the mirror and figure out what was happening because there's only a certain level to which you can continue to blame others. There comes a point where not to blame yourself, but you've got to really look introspectively at what changes you can make to empower yourself to be better, right? For yourself. 
So at this point in my journey, I think, you know, going to, going to France for treatment was life altering. I ended up going alone and in staying there and basically like living with the locals is what I call it. I learned that things don't always have to be so hard and so fast and so dramatic. Things can be very normal if you accept yourself first. And spending all that alone time walking, literally walking streets of Paris, as as funny as it sounds, it was so healing. And it was such an amazing experience that when I came back, I had a renewed sense of self and a renewed sense of life. Just to clarify, I know you said you went to France. What what made you go to France? So you were refer- re-referred by your oncologist? Yeah, to I was. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so basically what ended up happening back then, I don't know if you remember Farrah Fawcett had anal cancer and she ended up passing away, but she had documented her entire journey. And so she used to fly to Germany to get treatment at a particular institute there. And so my plan was to go to that same institute. And when I spoke to my oncologist about it, my oncologist said, you know, he wasn't familiar with that institute, but he was familiar with the one that he referred me to. So I ended up trying this one prior to going to Germany. And I I was really fortunate because it's quite expensive to go there. But mom had helped me out and financially and helped to send me there, which was an amazing opportunity because not everybody gets that. Yeah, that's true. So coming out of it, like really, I, I, I remember it kind of like a blur, but I remember coming back and I remember starting a bunch of alternative therapies, but also seeing, starting to see a psychologist who was working with me on a lot of my traumas and a lot of my limiting self-beliefs about who I should be and why I felt that way. And it was a very intricate journey. But throughout this healing process, I did realize that because I was so sensitive and I felt so much, I also was doing this in my daily life with everybody that I knew. And so when you start to practice a level of self-love and self-forgiveness, things change. And it's very hard to explain. And I don't know if it was intuition or if it's some kind of divine intervention, but it was very strange how I would like literally go and uh, research things online and things would come up for me. And I eventually found this book about several cancer survivors who'd gone through a retreat in Atlanta. So I went to that retreat in Atlanta instead of going back to France for my follow-up visit. And when I went to this retreat to Atlanta, uh, the morning would be spent uh, learning a raw food diet and the afternoon would be spent in group therapy sessions. And there's one day where this woman was teaching us about grief and told us the story about her father and about how she loved her father and he was her best friend and how when he died, she was holding him. And it was very, very reminiscent of our story with our dad. And she said that what she realized several years after he died was that there was this umbilical cord attaching her to him and attaching all the terrible memories of the illness to her. And she said, I unplugged the umbilical cord and rolled it up and I gave it back to him. And I honor him because I honor the goodness and the good memories, but I let go of all the other 
that session was so life-changing for me. I went up to her and I started crying like a crazy woman and I didn't understand why, but I told her, I can't unplug that umbilical cord. And she said, you have to, she goes, you have to go, go to the bathroom, look in the mirror and unplug that umbilical cord. And I practiced unplugging that umbilical cord all night that night. And I remember waking up the next morning super early and feeling a sense of relief. And I don't know if it was that moment or several different things that I was doing at that time, including an oral chemotherapy that I was taking, something cured me. I came out of that cancer and ultimately that healing got me out of that relationship. And it got me into a space where self-love and self-forgiveness became an everyday part of my life. So it sounds like uh, that was a that was your turning point. I think it was my rock bottom. I think mm-hmm. when you're when you're faced with mortality and you're faced with a situation where you are literally being abused by somebody else, but you're also allowing the abuse on yourself. I think that's really a good way to define what rock bottom would look like in a situation like this. There was never a point where I wanted to give up because I had these two children I was responsible for, but it was very dark, very many times. And it was very, very isolating, very many times. And uh, in hindsight, I sometimes look at, you know, everything that I've been able to achieve today. And I think what a dichotomy in my life between that state that I was in and what I came out and into because that Amy is not recognizable anymore. I know as you're talking about um, your experience with going to Atlanta and doing your treatments, aside from that, I know with regard to cancer, you don't want to talk about specifics about treatment because it's different for every person. People have different cancers. They have different experiences. I'm sure even people who were in Atlanta, they probably told you the same thing that, yep, you can follow something. It might work for one person. It might not work for others. But aside from that, is there anything beyond that, some type of tool or something that sort of helped you to get through things or helped you to see that uh, the relationship you were in that you just did, you couldn't be in it anymore? Was there something that helped you to get there? It sounds funny to people sometimes, but I think a major reason why I got through that time is I learned how to meditate and I learned how to slow my brain down. I learned how to live in the moment. I learned how to recognize things and see them for what they are instead of telling myself lies, really, right? Those thoughts in your head that are in there for whatever reason, um, whether they're fed by other people or they're made up in your own mind. It's very easy to go with the flow and to not recognize that the situation that you're in is dire or to recognize that those moments can be changed, right, with a decision. So I think what ended up happening is with the slowing of that part of my mind, I was able to think clearly and make better decisioning when it came to things like the relationship and realizing I needed to end it or like the cancer itself, instead of embracing it and making it a part of my story or a part of my journey, I really said, you know what? I don't want any part of this anymore. And there was also a part of me, as crazy as it sounds, that was in denial saying, no, you know what? I really don't have cancer. 
And I would literally tell myself that all the time. I used to do meditation. There's this body scan meditation where I would lie in bed and I would imagine the cancer leading my body. Um, I know anatomy so well, so I would literally look at organs and I would look at different parts of my body and imagine it going. A lot of that mental work that I did is actually what stays with me today and also helps me through my day-to-day activities now. You know, when I'm feeling tired, I tell myself I'm not tired. It's almost like tricking your brain to control your body and talking yourself through it. And I think that is a huge weapon when it comes to chronic disease and especially cancer. I I know you said that after Atlanta, so you were cured following that. So chronologically speaking, how long after once you once you got back, when did you find out the news? And was was that also sort of another turning point to to just say, you know what, I'm out of this relationship, and start something new? Well, um, at that point, I'm trying to remember if the relationship was over. No, I think it ended shortly afterwards, but it was just a few months afterwards. So I had already been um, on the oral chemotherapy for quite a while, and I'm not sure what it was that was working, but it was a very profound when you start to realize and you start to understand your own reality and your own truth, you start to realize that it becomes easier and easier to make your decisions and to stick by them instead of making them and then getting talked out of it or self-doubting yourself. And at that time, when you're so deeply entrenched also in an abusive relationship, you start to believe what your partner is telling you. I think there was a moment where I started to realize that the stuff is not true and that I was being gaslit to believe that there was something wrong with me when really all I wanted to do was be my authentic self and to live my life with my children. So it ended a few months after then that you were cured. And then this was the start of a new journey for you. It was, it was almost like a new life. So at that time, I, I mean, I took the girls and we moved uh, into a new house. We lived this new life. It was like a newfound uh, confidence and a newfound purpose and the sky's the limit. You know, it was almost like being high on life and realizing that I can do anything I put my mind to. And that has transformed over the years. I've met my husband who I'm with right now, who's an excellent person who loves my kids uh, like they're his own. I actually got pregnant. Um, being told I was infertile and we have a child together now. But besides that, I think I'm very grateful every day that I'm able to create in my own life. So I'm able to create this podcast idea, you know, working in healthcare for over 21 years, I meet so many people who have such interesting stories. And I also meet people who are really struggling with just surviving their day-to-day life. So this podcast was created as a passion project, really, to inspire change and inspire thriving for people who are just surviving right now, and to give them the hope to continue on. And really, at the end of the day, Everything that I do is a result of that feeling and that knowledge. It's almost like I have the secret of life now. It just motivates me to do more and to offer the world more. And those whose lives I can touch, I can make a bigger impact. And that's just, it's amazing. I feel like that's a major purpose while we're, why we're here. 
And and so in terms of sort of working on that thought, everyone has their own opinion of maybe what that means to them, or it might be something different. But if there's one thing you could tell people about that word and that feeling of thriving, what would you encourage people do to maybe try to find that sense of thriving? Because it, it, it can be difficult to even get there when you are struggling with so many things. So I think it's really important to address the fact that when you are surviving or you're in survival mode, you don't really see that aspect, right, of what could be. But to get yourself into a mode where you can start to thrive, you have to address and rehabilitate what's happened to you through surviving, right? Not everyone survives either, right? So if you're a survivor, you're already unique to begin with. And after surviving, in order to get to that thriving or to get to, you know, flow, perhaps you could say, there's a deeper understanding of what that should look like to each person individually. For me, this was what thriving looked like, was to really feel moments of happiness, happiness that I felt being fully alone, right? And not relying on somebody else to give me that happiness because we all know that, you know, that's just a farce. At the end of the day, you cannot thrive or flow until you've addressed what's made you come out of what you were, what you were surviving. For me, I think a lot of it is the help that I've had from therapists. Like I always have a psychologist who's involved with me. Um, I always have a healthcare team that's super strong. Um, I always have a naturopath. I'll always have a massage therapist. I'll always have different parts and different components of professionals who can train, who are trained to help me with thriving. And I, I always address what's happening physiologically as well as what's happening to me mentally, right? And emotionally, because really at the end of the day, we are a whole person, right? And I think the evolution that's going to be involved once we all come out of this COVID situation is to really understand what really happened to us outside of just a virus. There's a deeper connection between humans. And for those of us who recognize it, we're really the lucky ones. So it sounds like a lot of self-care is important. Self-care, self-understanding, introspection. And accepting of it, right? Letting go of your past and letting go of other things. Letting go was a huge part of what my journeys look like. Letting go of bad relationships or toxic relationships. Letting go of limiting beliefs about myself, right? Letting go of paradigms I have in my mind about things and how they should be. Because really, at the end of the day, things are going to be how they're going to be. So maybe you can talk a little bit about now that we look at things more in, in the current state of your life. And I know you touched upon it a little bit about your partner and, and we know you have the kids and all of that. But what do you see as success in your life now? And, you know, in talking about the thriving and, and finding moments of happiness, what does that look like to you? For me, honestly, a win is living in the moment. So I take every day individually. I have gratitude every day for the small things that happen to me and the small things that I experience. I mean, 
in this situation, it's funny, like on the weekend, I went grocery shopping and I was feeling grateful that I could do that, right? In the situation that we're in right now. But it's very, very much about the small things. It's nothing that's, you know, earth shattering or massive. It's just small steps towards moments of happiness. I really, really advocate for that in one of my personal businesses as a coach and in a in, in a course that I'm going to be releasing soon, I, I talk a lot about Kaizen and how small steps towards a larger goal will get you to that larger goal faster than thinking that you can wipe everything out and change your life. For me to even talk about my story in depth, it's taking me about 10 years to get here and talk about it the way I'm talking about it today. So it's always those small steps and it could take years, right, of self-understanding and self-development work to get you to a, a level where you can actually even verbalize the experiences that you're having in your day-to-day life, right, today that are helping you thrive and helping you feel fulfilled. And of course, you always have setbacks and you always have moments of anxiety and you'll always have moments where you need to give yourself grace, right, for being human. I'm not perfect either. But for me, even just small things like having another day to live is something for me to be grateful for. Yeah, I know. And I know we've talked about this before, but that whole practice of sitting down at the end of the day and just writing down what you're grateful for, even doing it as a family and just, oh, what are the three things we're grateful for today? It's interesting how something as simple as that can reframe your mind and make you sort of realize that there is a lot to be grateful for, even when things may seemingly not look so good mm-hmm. or not feel so good. <laughs> so at the beginning of COVID, I mean, I, I had the kids writing out every day what they're grateful for to start off the day because they were mm-hmm. waking up and wondering what their purpose was now that they weren't in school and seeing their friends. And for children, it's been really, really, really hard to be home and to be away from that community that they usually know. It's a huge practice. And I think that it makes a huge impact, but it's a very small action to take, right? That's actionable by anybody. And if you can't even write it down to realize it, it just gets your endorphins going and it gets you thinking in a different way. Human beings have a negative bias. So we are biased to think in the negative. So by doing that, you're flipping the way your brain, you're trying to make it a habit to, and go against what you're naturally trying, like your brain is trying to make you think negatively, but that way you're trying to overthrow that and say, actually, I'm going to look at the positive things today and not just focus on that. Yeah. So that's really helpful. Yeah. So Amy, I know that uh, you like to sort of end the podcast by honoring someone in your life um, that did not survive. And I'm wondering, is there someone someone that you'd like to honor? So there's there's actually two people I want to talk about today. Um, and the first person is the obvious choice, which is my father. My father was an extraordinary man. I've never really met anybody like him in my life. Uh, and he 
really paved the path, not only for feminism in our household, but I really feel that his impact on the city of Toronto and everything that he did, whether it was him on the on the job, whether it was his participation in so many different community boards, he left an impact and an imprint on people um, to the point where even today, to almost 21 years after he passed away, we have people who give us feedback about what an impact he had on their life and that, you know, he was such a great person that nobody can really ever say anything bad about him. He was definitely our best friend. Um, he made an effort to be present in our lives and present in moments that we remember. And it's so impactful that even my children know about so many stories and know him and appreciate him. So that was really one of the people that I want to recognize today. The second person I want to recognize is a very good friend of mine who passed away about a year and a half ago, my friend Stacy. My friend Stacy struggled with cancer for so many years. I actually met her in Atlanta when I was coming out of my journey and she was entering her journey. And she really, really fought a hard battle. I don't talk about her often because a part of me wants to believe she's still somewhere out there but the devastation that I experienced and that my daughter's experience when she died was so impactful because she was just such a gracious and such a generous person. And really, she was too young to go. She went very fast at the end, and uh, it was quite a shock. But we, we honor her regularly by talking about her and by keeping the presents that she gave to the girls because she never missed their birthday so that they can continue that relationship with her um, in their own way. I'm really glad that you and I got to do this together. Me too. Today, because it was a real struggle for me personally. And it's so nice to share it with, you know, somebody that I really love and uh, somebody who knows me so well. So thank you, Mavish, for doing this with me. You're welcome. Well, thank you for letting me do this. I think even what you said about talking about people um, also helps you to deal with grief. And I know with dad, that helped me to deal with a lot of grief, just talking about him. Um, and I think remembering Stacy too, and talking about her, it's, it's, it's a wonderful way to honor someone's legacy too, with them not being here and, you know, keeping their memory alive. That's, that's really all we can do, but it's a, it's a good way to keep them, keep them alive in our thoughts and, and honor their legacy. So Thanks for letting me be a part of this. (laughs) Thanks, Mavish. Thank you for joining us today at Calm After the Storm. Thank you for tuning in to Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories. Today's episode was brought to you by 15minutesaday.ca. We look forward to hearing from you again. Feel free to leave comments and suggestions in the message area below or to reach out to our team if you feel that you are a good candidate for appearing on Calm After the Storm.